Lead to Win is brought to you by Leaderbox, a monthly reading experience curated by leaders for leaders. Learn more at leaderbox.com. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt, and this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work, succeed at life, and lead with confidence. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the benefits of self-care for leaders. Now, for leaders, there never seems to be enough time in the day, and our needs are often the ones that get shortchanged. Now, imagine what your life would be like if you really did have time for both your career and family and the time to take care of yourself. Think of the last time you felt fully rested or were able to relax without feeling anxiety over all the things you should be doing. Now, imagine that that could be your life every day. Now, I've learned from experience the necessity of prioritizing your own needs. I see many leaders who neglect their health and relationships And I've seen too many leaders burn out or blow up all because they couldn't figure out how to care for themselves while leading others. And I want you to avoid that. I'm going to point out the three amazing benefits that you can enjoy by tending to your physical and emotional well-being. In fact, I think self-care drives success. So this episode is going to be a a little bit different because not long ago, I had an amazing opportunity to speak to the leaders at the LeaderCast event. Now, this is an annual event. I've actually been involved with this from the beginning, and I've been on hiatus for maybe about five years. I haven't been involved in it, but I had the opportunity to speak main stage at this event. So this event was held just outside of Atlanta at the Infinite Energy Arena, and there were 3,500 leaders there live. And then we had over 80,000 listening in various locations via satellite download. So biggest audience I've ever spoken to, and it was an amazing opportunity. I was one of nine speakers, and I spoke on the topic of self-care as a leadership discipline, and I want to share it with you now. This is Elon Musk. And unlike me, he needs no introduction. He's the CEO of Tesla, of course. Many of you probably drive his cool electric cars and the rest of us envy you and want to drive them. He's also the CEO of SpaceX, which get this, it's a company that wants to colonize Mars. In fact, Musk intends to be buried there. This is not a guy who dreams small. This is a guy who has a vision that is quite literally interplanetary. It's no surprise that this kind of visionary leader commands our attention. I mean, we admire the scope of his ambition and his single-minded dedication to making his dreams a reality. And many leaders, perhaps you, want to emulate him. But when we try to do that, we come into a serious problem. Yes, Musk is a genius, but he's also an incorrigible workaholic. In a 2010 interview, Musk advised entrepreneurs that they need to be, quote, extremely tenacious and then just work like hell. He said you have to put in 80 to 100 hour weeks every week. He went on to explain if other people are putting in 40 hour work weeks and you're putting in 100 hour work weeks, then even if you're doing the same thing, you'll achieve in four months what it takes them a year to achieve. Now, 
That is perfectly good advice for a robot. But you are not intended to work those kinds of hours. Even Musk himself admits that this can be something that's wearing. It's something that I call the hustle fallacy. And Musk admits that this can be wearing on us and that this can produce a really high level of pain over time. And by pain, he means both physical and relational pain. For example, his first wife, Justine, said this, quote, Elon was obsessed with his work. When he was at home, his mind was elsewhere. And his kids experienced this same thing with Musk writing, what I find is that I'm able to be with them and still be on email. Yeah, right. We all know how that works. Lately, he's been sleeping so much on his couch at the Tesla factory that his fans started a campaign to buy him a more comfortable couch. Caffeinated beverages used to fuel his breakneck pace until because of them, he started losing his peripheral vision. One lesson is clear from Musk's life. The hustle fallacy leads to self neglect. Look, I get it. I followed into that same trap myself. In 1999, my career was booming. I had just written my first New York Times bestseller. I was on my way to being named the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, and I was squeezing in a dozen or so radio or television interviews a day. And from the outside, it looked like I was on this enormous winning streak. But Inside, I was fried. I was totally out of shape. I wasn't sleeping well. I was rarely taking vacations. And I was constantly worried that I was sacrificing my family on the altar of my own ambition. The stress and the exhaustion finally caught up with me in a series of heart attack scares and Thankfully, they weren't heart attacks, they were panic attacks, but the last time I was in the ER, the doctor said to me, he said, if you don't make some major lifestyle changes, the next time you're in here, it's gonna be the real thing. And it scared me to death. And that's when I began to realize that working 80-hour weeks, that was a little bit like Elon Musk's early SpaceX rockets. Ambitious, but explosive. Thankfully, a series of small steps brought me back to better health. Better eating, a little exercise, leaving work early, spending more time with my family. 20 years later, the gains are remarkable. I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life. I rarely work weeknights or on weekends. I have plenty of time for my family, my friends, and my hobbies, and I get to spend month-long annual sabbaticals with my wife, Gail, to whom I've been married for 40 years. But here's the point, it hasn't hurt my career either. In fact, it's fueled it. And I believe these two things can be symbiotic. They can fuel one another. 
Some assume that the hustle fallacy, the only alternative to that is what I call the ambition break. And this is when you refuse to shortchange your health and your family for the sake of your career. So you intentionally pump the brakes, throttle your career. But sadly, what you end up with is wasted potential and unfulfilled dreams. If I had to choose between those two, I'd like to think that I would choose health and family, but let's be honest, none of us wants to make that choice. And thankfully, we don't have to. There's a third alternative, and it's something that I call the double win truth. When you're unwilling to compromise your contribution either at work or at home, like I said, you, they're symbolic. They fuel one another. Your work gives you confidence, joy, and financial provision to bring home, and your health and home life, in turn, lend a clear mind, creativity, and a rested body to your work. That's the double win truth. Now, I've seen it in my own life. When I traded in the hustle fallacy for self-care, my career didn't suffer. I went on to be named the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers. I began to see amazing things happen into my life. I started my own firm in 2011. We've grown 10 times in the last five years. Last year, Inc. Magazine named us as one of the fastest growing private companies in the U.S., and I tell you this not to brag, but to say it's possible to go this third way, the double win truth. It's an amazing return on a series of small investments. And I know that this false dichotomy may be preying on you too. I can see it in your faces. You, you feel the tension. Here's why. 61% of American workers struggle with work-related stress, no doubt fueled by this tension that they feel between the demands of their professional career and the demands of their personal life. In addition to that, your risk of a heart attack is 11 to 20% higher on Mondays. This is that time when you transition from work or from home to work and feel that tension full force. These stats come alive when I coach professionals and business leaders like you. High achievers are in high demand, therefore their workload keeps growing. And the tension is that they tend to dip into personal priorities and set those aside for the sake of the work that they have to do. So by a show of hands, I've got a question for you. How many of you have skipped a workout, shorted sleep, or carved into family time in the last month for the sake of work? Be honest. Okay, everybody. How about in the last week? Most of you. When we buy into the hustle fallacy, the first place we tend to cut is, you guessed it, self-care, right? Happens to all of us. I mean, it's one of those things that seems unnecessary, like a luxury, but it's not. It's imperative. Self-care has demonstrable career-enhancing, business-building benefits, and I want to share three with you today. But before I do, I think it's important that we define what it is that we're talking about. When I talk about self-care, here's what I mean. 
Self-care describes the activities that make for a meaningful life outside of work while contributing to greater performance at work. Let me say it again. Self-care describes the activities that make for a meaningful life outside of work while contributing to greater performance at work. It plays out in daily habits like sleeping enough, eating well, exercising regularly, connecting with the people that we love, engaging in meaningful hobbies, and making time for personal reflection. The hustle fallacy says that the bigger your vision, the more you've got to sacrifice self-care, right? What if the opposite were true? What if the bigger your vision, the more you have to prioritize self-care? Here's why. Benefit number one. Self-care gives you energy. And you need all the energy you can get, right? I know I do. Why? Because I have big ambitions, both personally and professionally. But there's a problem. High achievers like you often tell me, I don't have time for self-care. Right? I understand it. I get it. Life is busy. But usually when we say that we don't have time for something important, it's because we've bought into the myth of time management. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be intentional with how we manage our time, but the trouble comes when we accept the belief that skillfully massaging our schedule can somehow produce more time. And and we refuse to grapple with the fact that we have more tasks than time. That's always going to be true. And if we're not careful, the next thing we know, and it's 7 p.m. and we're eating takeout at our desk. Again, here's the hard truth. Time is fixed. It can't flex. You get 168 hours, no matter how important you may think you are. But here's another truth. Energy can flex. You can't give yourself more time. That's true. But you can bring a sharper, more energized you to bear on the time you've got available. And this is an insight I learned from Jim Lehrer. Productivity is less about managing time and more about managing your energy. And most people get this entirely backward. As a result, they work more and more, less and less efficiently. But the research shows that after a certain amount of time, we're just chasing our tail. Jack Nevison crunched the numbers from several studies on long work hours. And here's what he found. There's a ceiling for productive work. He calls it the law of 50. And it stands in stark contrast to the hustle fallacy. Push past 50 hours a week, and there's no productivity gain. Zero. In fact, it could go backwards. One study found that 50 hours on the job only yielded 37 hours of useful work. Push that up to 55 hours and it drops to 30. In other words, and you've seen the pattern, there's an inverse relationship between how much you work and how productive you are. You're not a robot. You're a person who needs rest to be at your best. As we think about self-care, you have to acknowledge that yourself is at the center. 
Now hear me, I'm not arguing that you should be self-centered, not at all. But I'm asking you to acknowledge the fact that yourself is central. Your health, your relationships, your children, your hobbies, your work, at the center of all these is you. You're all you have to offer these various facets of your life. If you're not nurturing yourself, if yourself is not thriving, then the influence you bring to these other dimensions is going to be less than what it could be. Think of the old adage of sharpening the saw. Abraham Lincoln supposedly said, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four sharpening the ax. Now, I don't know if he said that or not, but I do know the principle is true, and it's this. Time not chopping is worth as much, if not more, than time swinging the ax. In other words, it's how you ensure that the tool is up to the task. That's benefit number one. Self-care gives you more energy. Benefit number two, self-care gives you an edge. Look, we live in an incredibly competitive environment where even the slightest edge can spell the difference between success and failure. But there's a problem. Another objection that I often hear, and you've probably made it yourself, self-care seems indulgent. Let's bust that myth right now. Sharpening the blade is not indulgent. It's essential. The same is true for you. Self-care leads to higher performance, and the science proves it. First of all, self-care fuels creativity. It, your mind is like a machine that's powered by rest and recreation. Subtract those elements, and the machine cannot function at its top performance. Consider sleep. According to one study, trying to get by on six hours or less of sleep reduces our cognitive functioning to that of someone who is legally drunk. According to neuroscientists, quote, sleep-deprived people come up with fewer original ideas and also tend to stick with old strategies. An extra hour of sleep might be your best strategy for creating more innovation. Or consider exercise. Studies show that there's a direct correlation between bodily exercise and brain functioning, even low-impact exercise releases a protein called BDNF, which helps promote the growth of new brain cells and nourishes the ones you've got. As one study said, when we exercise our legs, we're exercising our brain. Or consider fun. Believe it or not, fun's a form of fuel. Writer Virginia Postrel says, quote, play nurtures a supple mind, a willingness to think in new categories and an ability to make unexpected associations. If you or your team need a breakthrough, you might just need a break. Sleep, exercise, fun, all are indispensable if we're going to be more creative in our work. But the benefits extend beyond creativity. Self-care also fuels confidence, and here's why. Exercise lowers our stress and anxiety levels while at the same time raising our sense of self-efficacy. In other words, it increases the belief that we can accomplish difficult tasks, which in turn fuels greater performance at work. And there's one more way that self-care gives you an edge. It's even been linked to higher earnings. 
Researchers in Finland followed 5,000 male twins over the course of 30 years. They tracked which ones were sedentary and which ones were active. And they came to the conclusion that regular exercise, get this, results in bigger long-term earnings, as much as 14 and 17% higher. That'd be a nice raise this year, wouldn't it? It turns out that regular exercise forms the kind of character that wins in the marketplace. According to these researchers, exercise, quote, makes people more persistent in the face of work-related difficulties and increases their desire to engage in competitive situations. Would more creativity, increased confidence, greater competitiveness give you an edge? Yeah, I think so. It would me. Now, just in case you're still on the fence, let me make one final argument. As we've seen, self-care improves performance, but conversely, self-neglect causes crises that cripple careers. I remember when an executive I worked with went through a painful divorce. It left a leadership vacuum in our company for about a year. I mean, he was there, but barely so. Years of self-neglect and workaholic neglect broke down his family. And it eventually broke down the career that he'd fought so hard to build. And I've seen the same thing happen to leaders who have experienced health crises after years of bodily neglect finally caught up with them. I don't want to see any of that happen to you. Self-care gives you an edge by warding off the crises that can undermine your career or impede the growth of your business. So benefit number one, self-care gives you energy. Benefit number two, self-care gives you an edge. And benefit number three, self-care gives you endurance. We live in a world that worships heroic work. And you might be tempted to think that if you took off a little early for the sake of self-care, that people at the office might begin to talk. Or they might be, uh, begin to question your commitment to the mission. That's why I think defining the win is necessary to achieving it. If there's no target, there can be no bullseye. So it's important that we stop to clarify the kind of success that we're after. And there are two questions that I found helpful. First, do you want one-dimensional or multi-dimensional success? Are you willing to be sort of the industry titan at the expense, for example, of being a loving father or mother? Do you want to be the youngest executive in the boardroom, even if it costs you your health? If that's what you want, fine. But if you're hoping to achieve both, it's going to take a different approach. The second question I found to be helpful is this one. Do you want momentary or sustained success? Now, I've had friends who have buckled down in tough situations for a limited amount of time in order to achieve a specific financial target. If you want that, fine. But make no mistake about it. The hustle fallacy comes with a high, very high price tag. If you're after enduring success, success at work and at home, self-neglect can't be part of the equation. Long-term success requires sustainable habits. Now, let's be honest. 
The hustle fallacy can be very effective in short spurts. But when you stack sprint upon sprint upon sprint, like I know some of you are doing, it's a recipe for burnout. Some of you are feeling that probably this morning. Alexandra Michelle conducted a study of investment bankers who regularly worked between 100 and 120 hours a week. Now, obviously, there's only 168 hours a week, so they were shorting self-care. Not surprisingly, Michelle found that these bankers were extremely productive for the first couple of years. Also not surprising, it didn't last. Starting in year four, she said, quote, bankers started to experience sometimes debilitating physical and psychological breakdowns. They suffered from chronic exhaustion, insomnia, back and body pain, autoimmune diseases, heart arrhythmias, addictions, and compulsions, causing them to exhibit diminished judgment and ethical sensitivity. In other words, the harder they worked, the more they tried to compensate for their lack of productivity with more work. It was a vicious cycle, and it just didn't work. So, why would they sign up for 100 hours a week? Probably because they've fallen into the same myth that you and I often fall into, we think we're the exception, right? I mean, maybe you think, okay, I'm working 50 or more hours a week, but I'm actually quite productive. Or you think, I haven't exercised since college, and I'm, I'm healthy as a horse. Look, there's nothing inherently wrong with stamina or a work ethic, but the long-term effects of thinking we're exempt from self-care are severe. Take Marissa Mayer, the former CEO of Yahoo, who bragged publicly that she got by on four hours sleep a night, but then fell asleep and was publicly ridiculed because she missed a high-profile marketing meeting. In fact, she arrived three hours late. Or Andreetta Huffington, who after a series of 80-hour weeks, fainted from exhaustion and broke her cheekbone on the desk on her way to the floor. Some of us are working ourselves into lackluster marriages, alienation from our kids, bodies that are prone to disease and illness. In some extreme cases, we might even be working ourselves into an early grave. Self-care offers a brighter alternative. Those who slow down enough to enjoy their work stay at it longer, and perform better. They also have well-tended bodies, family lives, and friendships that they can take into their golden years. This kind of endurance only comes to those who practice self-care. So let's review. When you prioritize self-care, you'll experience three career-enhancing, business-building benefits. One, increased energy. Two, a competitive edge, and three, long-term endurance. And you can unlock these benefits with three simple steps. First, make a commitment to self-care. If not now, when? When you have that heart attack? When your spouse serves you with divorce papers? When your kids go astray? When? Now is the time. Second, set hard boundaries around your workday and weekends. In other words, protect your margin. You're going to need it if you're going to perform at the top of your game. Third, set a goal of sleeping eight hours a night. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, but when it comes to self-care, nothing is more important than your rest. And if you want to take this further, and I hope that you will, I've also put together a free resource for you called the Self-Care Starter Kit. It includes two components. First, 
an online assessment that'll help give you a score as to exactly where you are in terms of self-care. It's brand new. We just launched it for this conference. Number two, a free ebook called The Busy Leader's Self-Care Handbook, Seven Simple Strategies to Boost Your Energy, Up Your Focus, and Achieve Extraordinary Results. And you can get that at michaelhyatt.com slash self-care. Again, it's free. As I close, allow me to add one more benefit that's at stake, your example. After all, my topic is self-care is a leadership discipline. As it turns out, you're not the only one who suffers when you fall prey to the hustle fallacy. Not surprisingly, at Tesla, the culture began to mirror the haggardness of its driven CEO. One former employee said of Musk, people who worked for him were like ammunition, used for a specific purpose until exhausted and then discarded. Now it's clear that Elon Musk is remarkable. Maybe his grueling methods will eventually get him the results he wants, but the jury's still out. But even if he's the rare exception that can get by with that level of self-neglect, can your team, can his team? So you've got a choice here. Some people think the chance of explosive success is worth the wear and tear on themselves for the sake of success. But again, it comes at a steep price. Others believe in this false dichotomy, and so they opt to apply the ambition break. Not me. I'm after the double win. And let me get really personal here. I have five daughters, and they have brilliant minds and big hearts. Maybe I'm a little biased. One of them's the CEO of our company. Three of them are thriving business builders. Another has joined forces with her husband to launch their own startup. And I don't want to tell them that they have to choose between being healthy or building a business, between being happy wives and mothers or growing their business. I don't want them to have to choose between rest and recharging or going all in on their career. I want them to have both. And I want it for the people I coach. But it's not enough for me to say it with my words. I have to lead by my example. Why? Because leaders go first. They walk ahead so that others can follow behind. If you want your family and your teammates to prioritize self-care, you have to show them the way. If you want them to have thriving home lives and fulfilling careers, you have to show them how. You can be a living example that self-care drives success. And it's an example that you can set beginning today. I hope, no, I pray, that you won't settle for anything less than the double win. You can win at work and succeed at life. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed that. I've got some additional thoughts about this speech I want to share with you. But before we get back to that, I want to share with you a resource I think you're going to find very helpful. Last week, I spoke to you about a new book we just published called No Fail Meetings. And I want to remind you, your meetings do not have to be counterproductive. They can be the most powerful catalyst for productivity, innovation, and teamwork, but only if you run them in the right way. 
Again, the book is called No Fail Meetings. It's a physical book detailing my five-step process for running effective meetings and eliminating unnecessary ones. And with this tool at your side, I'm confident that you'll transform your meeting culture. Not only that, but you'll maximize your time and your profit. But here's the kicker. You only have until the end of today, Tuesday the 22nd, to claim the pre-order price and bonus. After today, the price will increase and you'll miss out on the pre-order bonus. To get more info on this deal, just head to nofailmeetings.com. But remember, the pre-order deal ends today. So I happen to have Megan Hyatt Miller, my co-host, my daughter, and the CEO of our company in the studio with me. COO, just to be clear. What did I say? You said CEO. Are you promoting me on the show? <laughs> yeah. Well, if I, if I am, I just worked myself out of a job, <laughs> which might not wow. be the worst thing. This day turned out better than I thought. <laughs> Well, you know, I think leaders have to give presentations on a regular basis, right? I mean, this is something not always to 80,000 people or 85,000 people, thank right. goodness, but we all have to do it at some level. And I know that our listeners are curious what it was like for you to prepare for this speech and what some of the secrets to your success are there, because uh, this is not something that most people can do uh, without a lot of practice and experience. Well, right. And I mean, I can't do it without a lot of practice and without a lot of preparation. I just yeah. didn't walk up the st on the stage and I'm just this amazing, you know, inspiring person that can do this stuff off the top of my head. Uh, what people often don't see is the iceberg that's below the water. Right. And so a speech like this starts months and months in advance of actually delivering it. Mm -hmm. So we started with the idea and yep. I came up with the title, Self-Care is a Leadership Practice, mm -hmm. and kind of fleshed out what the main points uh, were going to be. And then I turned it over to the content team. And so they began to do some research and pull together some ideas. Then we collaborated on that. We went through quite a few edits, but we literally transcribed or created a script of the entire speech. Now, this is not always common for everybody that gives speeches. Not everybody's going to have a content team. And in fact, for right. you, for years, wrote everything you ever delivered in any kind of presentation, right? That's right. Yeah. And so now one of the advantages of, of having a content team, much like this podcast, is we can go much deeper in mm -hmm. terms of finding relevant illustrations, um, statistics, the things that make it compelling. That's the things you can do and you, you outsource some of that. But again, I get that most leaders or many leaders will not be able to do that. So we get the script and that's great. Once that gets settled, then we hired an outside design agency uh, to create a slide deck. So I had about 36 slides, I think, maybe, you know, give or take. Uh, and by the way, we should include that as a resource in the show notes. So if you want to go to my website at michaelhyatt.com, you'll be able to find all the show notes, but particularly the slide deck here so people can see it. But um, the slide deck was important. Mm -hmm. And honestly, when I got that back in its final form, it was also very inspiring to me because I thought, right. this is coming together, you know? And so I only had 25 minutes to give this speech. So part of the reason we scripted it, I do not script most speeches. In fact, this may be one of the first times I've ever scripted an entire speech front wow. to back. So then, and this is where the work began. Okay. So everything up to that point was a lot of work for sure, but now the work began and now the work's all mine. So I blocked off several days and I literally gave this speech on my feet out loud as if I were in a live audience over 20 times. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
And Lest so, you think people are just naturals and they get up there and deliver amazing speeches. Right. This is what's happening behind the scenes. You know, from my perspective, I want to be so well rehearsed and so prepared that it sounds spontaneous. Right. Right. Well, particularly because you were working from an actual script. I mean, at the event, you had a giant teleprompter. Right. In the back of the room that you were working off of, as did many of the other speakers that day. That's the first time I've ever seen you do that. Yeah. In some ways, that's easier, right? Because you don't have to remember things. In right. some ways, it's much harder because the inflection and the uh, kind of heart behind it, if you're too reliant on those words and they're not kind of in your um, just DNA at a certain level, then it's difficult for it to feel natural. Natural. Well, that's that's why it's so important to rehearse it, mm-hmm. because even as I was rehearsing it, I kept changing a word here, a word there to make it my own. Yeah. But by the time I stood up to give it, you know, the teleprompter was helpful because it reminded me in case I got stuck and gave me confidence. Yeah. But literally, my heart was wide open. I was making sure that every word landed, and it felt like it was an expression that was happening in the moment. But that only happens with sufficient rehearsal. Yes. This is kind of a funny thing. Like, so the Wednesday before I gave the speech on Friday... I assembled seven of our team members uh, here in our little studio, and I gave the speech to them. I'm going to tell you something. That was 10 times more scary than talking to 85,000 people. That's crazy. Yeah, why? because I, I don't know why. It's always speaking to a small group is always really scary. Yeah. But I w- first of all, I was going too fast on the speech. I was stumbling over words. You know, it just wasn't smooth. I was all up in my head. And I just, it, it was kind of ding my confidence. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second because okay. this is a really big issue. Do you get scared when you give a speech? Like how nervous do you feel? Well, I, 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 always, I always feel nervous and I always want to feel nervous because as I've said before, that's my body's way of preparing me for peak performance. So what that is is really adrenaline that's coursing through my body and everybody thinks better responds faster, thinks more clearly on adrenaline. Okay, but that's like the day of. That's when the adrenaline right. is your friend. But let's talk about like the couple weeks before. I mean, are you just confident and you're like, I can totally do this? No. Or do you go through kind of ups and downs? And I, I go down? through a lot of ups and downs. I, I would say that I'm able to put one foot in front of the other and kind of be courageous, mm-hmm. believing that the process is going to result in the outcome but also wondering, especially late at night, you know, <laughs> if if this is going to be sort of the last speech I give where I, you know, fall flat on my face and make a fool out of myself and embarrass all my colleagues. And yeah, I mean, those, those thoughts are in my head. Yeah. You know, but but for the most part, because I've got a lot of experience, I know I'm going to get through it mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm able to stay focused. Your energy was great on stage. Yeah. You were really animated. You smiled a lot. You were very excited. Um, and we've been at other events where maybe the speakers were not so animated and they just kind of seemed flat in some way, yep. you know? And I think that's something that speakers struggle with. Like, how animated do you get? Because you don't want to be cheesy and seem over the top. But you have an interesting way of thinking about that. Yeah. So my thought on this, and I learned this from my friend, Ken Davis, who was my speech coach for years and from whom I learned the score methodology, score with two R's. Um, He said, you got to go bigger on stage than you think. Hmm. And especially on a big stage, you got to go even bigger than you think. In fact, one of my criticisms even of this speech is I probably wasn't as big as I could have been. But it's funny, you bring the energy. If you're not energetic, people are not going to be enthusiastic about your speech. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing that I I learned from Tony Robbins. Energy is a caused thing. You've got the choice. You're going to either be the thermostat or the thermometer. The thermostat causes the temperature. The thermometer reflects the temperature. And so I remember years ago, I walked into a 
uh, speech were, I think it was a bunch of accountants in Florida. And I mean, nothing they were- Nothing against accountants. Oh my gosh. Nothing against accountants. <laughs> but let's just say they weren't enthusiastic. Right. There wasn't a lot of energy emanating for those guys. And so I went out there and I didn't have a lot of energy. Yeah. And then I said to my agent who happened to be there at the time, I said, well, that just was a dead crowd. And then I started thinking about that. I said, okay, I'm going to have more dead crowds in the future. Yeah. Am I just going to acquiesce to their energy and not give a great speech? Or am I going to bring it? And so I just realized that the chances of success are a lot greater if I can, you know, be energetic myself. Mm-hmm. And and part of that comes, I, I go through a series of affirmations before I ever step on stage, but reminding myself that what I have to say is important yeah. and these people need it. The biggest shift that happens for me when I'm speaking is I get out of my head and start thinking about the people. Mm-hmm. If I'm thinking about myself, like, how am I going to perceive? Are they going to like this? Will they think I'm funny? If I start thinking like that, that's going to be a disaster. It's a doom loop. If I start thinking about them, you know, that they desperately need this, they're going to benefit from this, and I start thinking about what the needs are that they come with, then everything goes well. Those are great takeaways. I appreciate it. And I think our audience will be able to gain confidence that um, it doesn't always come easily to you, but with practice and experience and the right mindset that they too can be successful in time. And a lot of practice. And a lot of practice. (laughs) 20 times practice. So today we've learned that self-care is an absolutely essential discipline for leaders. When you learn to take care of yourself, you gain three amazing benefits, energy, an edge, and endurance. As we come in here for a landing, I just want to remind you that this is one area in which it's okay to put yourself first. When you take care of yourself, you'll have the ability to lead others well. Dad, do you have any final thoughts today? Yeah, just that this is more important than you know. I mean, if I had a nickel for every leader I've seen burn up or blow up, you know, I'd I'd be a rich man. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we see this constantly. It's happening in the news. You can go almost any day to the news and see it. And so I just just would urge leaders to take this seriously. You know, if you want to be in this for the long haul, and if you want to accomplish the results that I know that you can accomplish, you've got to take care of yourself. As we close, I want to thank our sponsor, Leaderbox. It provides automated personal development in a box. Check it out at leaderbox.com. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, you can get the show notes and a full transcript online at lead2.win. And also thanks to LeaderCast for providing the audio for this episode. An amazing event. Make plans to attend it next year. And thank you for joining us on Lead to Win. If you like the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And as a reminder, we've made it super easy for you. Just go to michaelhyatt.com slash review it. This program is copyrighted by Michael Hyatt and Company. All rights reserved. Our producer is Nick Jaworski. Our writers are Joel Miller, Mandy Ravicchio, and Lawrence Wilson. Our recording engineer is Mike Burns. Our production assistants are Alicia Curry and Natalie Fockel. Our intern is Winston. I hope you'll join us next week when we'll be talking about the power of your words to create a better future. Until then, lead to win.